All right. Welcome back to Hints and Guesses, my little podcast. Thank you for listening. I appreciate it. And thank you, the few of you who reached out via Facebook and sent me a few messages and comments. I don't know. It's um, a few of you asked some really interesting questions about soul. And a few of you made some interesting comments about the mythopoetic and questions. I don't know, it, it helps. Uh, it feels in that sense less like a monologue and more like the beginning of a dialogue. And I don't know, it inspires me and helps me rethink things and gives me some ideas for future podcasts. So thanks, I appreciate it. Um, today's episode is dedicated to soul again. I'm trying to do a three-part series partly because that's what I'm interested in. I've been interested in the word soul for a while now, for a few years. Maybe I've had kind of a love-hate relationship with it. On the one hand, it seems like a really overused and in some senses overly religious word, soul. On the other hand, I, I've, I've yet to come up with a better alternative. There's something about it that's alluring, something about it that's mysterious, something about it that, that uh, demands... I think our attention, it's archetypal, it's rich, it's ancient. And to what is it pointing? I guess that's that's the question I'm trying to turn over. And the reason why I wanted to do this in three parts is because I'm just trying to hover around the word. I'm not, maybe by the end I'll take a stab at a definition, but I'll do so through images and poems and, and a myth. So maybe that's the best any of us can do is to try to hover around something. It's sort of like trying to hover around a word like God or spirit. You're at, at, at best, it's a hint and a guess. It's a finger pointing to the moon. But it's a worthwhile endeavor. That's at least what I'm, I'm convinced of. And just on a kind of a cliche cultural level, so many things in our culture strike us as soulless, soulless enterprises. And I think we kind of mean without depth. We even have leaders in this country, uh, both in politics and entertainment, who seem to be soulless, rootless, without, without depth, uh, or maybe even a more generous way of saying it, without accessing or access to their own depth and their own beauty. They don't seem to be rooted in anything other than their personal and political agendas and ideologies. And more and more our culture is looking like this. And what a crying shame. When you, when you spend time in a wild or wildish environment, you realize the incredible, unbelievable diversity of a meadow, of a landscape, of, uh, of a little patch of forest, of a swamp, and incredible diversity in, in plant life and, and soil and trees and, and birds and small animals. And it's teeming over with abundance and uniqueness. And so much of our culture feels like mono, monotone just flat, the same kinds of promises around 
fame and sex and money and and success and winning and and flat 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 and every product seems to be interchangeable with every other product and these by consuming these it's supposed to give us a sense of identity i know i'm saying things that that we all know yet i'm not maybe i'm not a person that is monastic in the sense of uh i I just need to get out of here and away from all this nonsense in one sense i think we're stuck with this mess of a culture and we have to turn our attention to it but from a more rooted and soulful place so maybe it's not about running away from the culture but maybe a finding some new ground to stand on, the kind of ground that can help our own monotone culture um, recover its capacity for harmony, diversity, depth, beauty, art, craft, meaning, love, (laughs) all the good stuff, I guess. Anyway, Back to soul, back to a conversation about soul. I want to do a couple things in this episode. I want to um, give you a metaphor, talk about a metaphor for soul, ego, and spirit. How, how are those related? How, how am I using words like that? And I've been influenced, I'm putting my cards on the table, by Bill Plotkin and his work. I've, I've been a part of, um, he's a psychotherapist and wilderness guide and author and and I've been uh, a participant in some of his programs through the Animus Valley Institute in Colorado. I continue to be so. It's really um, been an important, um, an important thing in my life. And the way he uses ego, soul, and spirit have definitely influenced me. So if you, that's my footnote. If you want more, check out his work. I think he's saying things in a fresh and creative way. So, um, yeah, I want to give you a little metaphor. I, I, I'll, uh, the metaphor is mine. It's, uh, I'm just going to use a metaphor of a tree to talk about these things. But um, the origins of the idea are probably rooted in Plotkin's work. Anyway, um, I also want to talk about, even if we're not quite clear on definition, how does one begin to cultivate a relationship with soul? I've come to think about it as kind of a dating relationship. How do you date your own inner depths? Because um, that's what I think, that's a way of, that's the invitation. How do we date this seed of who we are in the depths of our own being? How do we come to know it if much of it resides in the unconscious and therefore feels out of reach? Um. And the other thing I, I um, want to do is end with a poem. I think I'll end with a poem from David White. So first of all, quick story. I was in the Pacific Northwest this summer and leading a, a retreat, a wilderness retreat, a three-day, two-night uh, little retreat that I call Wilderness Within that I occasionally do. And um, there, was, there were some really amazing, interesting participants on this particular adventure. And one of them was a Buddhist, and 
not only a Buddhist, but was a Buddhist monk and had lived in a monastery for eight years. And he was a very interesting person. And we got to talking one day in, in sort of like some downtime, maybe right before a meal. And he was talking about how essentially he's at a, a, a place in his life where he's having to look at some things, some things that maybe he was trying to run away from eight years ago when he entered the monastery. At least that's how I was kind of understanding what he was saying. And he said something that really intrigued me. He said, the Buddha knew nothing about low self-esteem. The Buddha knew nothing about uh, immature, or what I would say, adolescent ego. In fact, when he began to talk about the path of, the, of enlightenment, maybe what we would call transcending the ego, the ego was pretty healthy. At least that's what this uh, Buddhist monk was saying. People weren't having existential identity crises. They sort of knew who, who they were and had a role in society and a family and, um, and were very connected to the earth and the cycles of the earth and planting and harvesting and the kind of humility that comes with the mystery of being a human being that's totally dependent on the natural environment. In other words, on one level, people had healthier, what I would call, egos. Or maybe just in a more simple sense, they didn't have low self-esteem. And it's at that point that the path of enlightenment, the path of the Buddha, begins to unfold as a real possibility. But he said, what's happening now is that so many of us who are attracted to the path of enlightenment, the path of the Buddha, God, Dharma, oneness, spirit, non-dual consciousness, have really low self-esteem, have very fragile, unhealthy, immature, and adolescent egos. And we think we can overcome them by going full on into spirituality. And there's a word for that. And we were talking about that. And the word for that is spiritual bypassing. I don't know who coined this term. It's probably worth maybe looking up yourself. But what a lovely, simple image. We're going to bypass the our own wounds, limitations, um, heartaches, hardships, immaturity, adolescent selves by going around the hard work and shooting up to the clouds and taking the path of spirituality. Like I had a friend who a few years ago in the middle of a, a really nasty divorce would spend hours and hours and hours meditating. Now, I have no idea, this is a total judgment on my part, but I, I'm just wondering, was that an act of bypassing the suffering and hardship of the present moment, meaning a collapsing marriage, by doing an end around, trying to skirt around it and taking the flying path up like Icarus or something, flying up to the sun. Although we know from the myth, of course, you fly too high, you get burned and you have to crash back to the earth. The reason why I wanted to start with this story in a conversation about soul is because really to have a conversation about soul 
we need to also have a conversation about spirit. And if we're going to have a conversation about those two things, let's talk about the ego. Let's talk about the everyday, ordinary persona. That's really my simple way of understanding the ego, my everyday self. Um, and and I, when I say ego, I don't mean necessarily something positive or negative. It's both. Maybe a better way of saying it is you can have an immature adolescent ego or a healthier, more mature, more robust one with greater self-esteem, for example. And really much of the work, and maybe I'm getting sick of people say, saying that they're, quote, doing their work, but <laughs> I think um, it's a helpful way of saying, yeah, I need help and I'm trying to, to work on it. But much of the work is actually around becoming a much more healthier egoic persona. Forget about spirituality for a minute or soul depth. Just how do I become a more mature adult in the world? So many of us, maybe everyone, was raised by immature, on one level, parents. We all have wounds and hang-ups and, or caregivers. And part of becoming a healthier adult, this is not about perfection by any stretch of the imagination, part of becoming a healthier adult, more whole, in other words, we have to learn to parent ourselves. We have to learn to pick up our own wounded child and not be putting that on everybody else. We have to learn to withdraw a bit of our projections and instead of putting them onto every partner, lover, boss, uh, television figure that we can, that, that sort of comes across our, our radar screen. And, that, and that's a lot of hard work. And in fact, there, I think there's a relationship between the deep dive of soul and the ascension of spirit, which I'll talk about in a moment, and becoming a more healthy and whole adult. That, a simple way to say it is, if we're not really working on that, if we're not taking a look at our thought patterns and our habitual selves and the things that hook us, then it's going to be difficult to, to dive beneath the surface of that. And perhaps it's going to be difficult to cultivate a relationship with spirit. We'll be prone to go around our problems through spiritual bypassing, for example. So anyway, I think that's just, uh, that story is... Um, and this conversation I have I, it was very powerful to me at the time. And in some ways, I could see how I had been trying to do that. I'm going to go around my life by finding, at least for a while, the right religious path, the oldest one. If I could just become Catholic or Orthodox or, um, or even Jewish and um, really, you know, I don't know, be full on. <laughs> with my religious fervor and devotion, then not only would I meet God, but my own hang-ups, problems, and issues, and wounds would be healed or fixed or something like that. So with that said, let me take a stab at ego and how I'm using it and a little bit of soul and spirit, how they're related. So the way I... Am coming to understand a word like ego is that it pertains to our everyday self, 
our everyday persona, who we think we are in the world. And it's not really um, positive or negative. I know in a lot of spiritual circles, everything gets pinned on the ego. Well, that was just ego. Um, And I agree, the ego uh, can take over. The ego can be very, very unhealthy. And we see that in entertainment and politics. A lot of unhealthy egos marching around in the world doing what they want to do. Um, But that doesn't necessarily mean that ego is bad. No, it's actually just a very natural part of being a human being. We come to know who we are. And in the world, our identity in the world, how we would describe ourselves. Th- think about the one of the very first questions anyone gets asked in a conversation is, what do you do? And that doing self is something like your ego, something like your ego persona. I do this in the world. I, I am a teacher. We all know that that doesn't sum up a person, but it helps situate who they are in a social context, and also who they are to themselves, if that makes sense. Like when I was a teacher, my students related to me that way. You're the teacher, I'm the student, here are the guardrails of the relationship. And I related to them that way. They're not my kid, they're a student, they're one of my students. And really, really helpful part of becoming a mature adult is are finding those really roles is what they are, finding those roles that make sense. It also turns out that um, those roles can take over our sense of identity and we get lost in them. Brother, sister, father, daughter, husband, wife, spouse, partner, lover, um, you know, teacher, banker, blah, blah, blah. Just you see how successful business person you see how the attachment to the identity can become a kind of fixation for the ego. And it thinks that's all it is. And if that gets taken away, I don't know who I am anymore. And really, that's a very simple way of um, identifying when we have pretty healthy, immature egos, low self-esteem. When something of that gets threatened and suddenly we don't know who we are anymore and Um, we've lost, we've, we're unmoored, we're unglued. And we can either follow that unraveling. (laughs) We can either uh, be tossed out to sea and begin a deeper journey or quickly cling to something, um, hook up to another dock so that we don't have to face the fear of of, um, being lost at sea. And we quickly identify to the next identity. You see this with religious people who leave one version of their faith and put it down, mock it, um, say, I'm definitely not that. And I've had my own fair share of that, saying I'm definitely not a fundamentalist. And then quickly turning to becoming a fundamentalist for something else. And so they've at sea, but they quickly anchor, quickly hook up to another dock. Um, and they can become just as fundamental, just as much of a fundamentalist for the new faith as they were in the old. There's not really a major shift in consciousness. There's just a shift in beliefs, really. You're just finding something else 
to meet the ego's craving for a sense of um, who it thinks it is in the world. So maybe, um, maybe that's helpful. Maybe that's not nearly enough or maybe that's too much. But for right now, I think that's um, maybe all I want to say about it. Other than um, I think part of the work, so to speak, that we're all invited into in the 21st century with all of the amazing um, tools, opportunities, teachers, voices, therapists, counselors, um, spiritual directors that are available to us is start to do some work on the level of the ego, moving from an adolescent, immature ego that is desperate for um, uh, like a kid out on a playground to be picked first in, in the line and not be left out that's concerned about winning and um, what kind of clothes and what social group it fits into and who's below them and who's above them. That's the immature ego to grow up and move to a more mature adult, maybe even elder-like ego. In other words, how we bring ourselves to the world in our work and in our everyday life, we need some help growing up big time. I know definitely I do. And that requires paying attention to our habits and patterns and hang-ups and wounds and doing the hard work, so to speak. And um, it may even take something like a 12-step process where you admit that you're powerless over your addictions and you begin the work. You begin the really, really hard work of looking at the truth of your own life and how you've been in the world. Um, and, and, you know, even... Um, Teachers that are talking about uh, non-attachment and um, non-dual consciousness and living in the present moment, like at Cartoli, for example, we have to turn some attention. We have to see the way our monkey mind, meaning our habitual patterns of thought, are running our lives. That inner um, monologue that's just trucking like a train constantly. Until you can see that... (laughs) As the ego talking itself to death, until you can see that, it's hard to get to the point of asking, is there anything beyond that? Is there anything beneath that? Is there anything above that? Is how real is that egoic persona? But in other words, I think just developing some health around it is a major monumental leap um, toward wholeness. So what do we mean then by spirit? Spirit is, the archetype is upper worldly. Why? That's why like even like the Babylonian ziggurats were um, essentially pyramids that went up to the heavens. Or you think about the actual pyramids, which were really tombs. They're pointed up toward the heavens, toward connection to Ra, the sun, gods, the gods, the the upper world. the mind of God, the heart of God, all has that kind of upper orientation. And what happens in spirituality more general, generally is that when we have spiritual experiences, we transcend our egoic persona. In other words, who we think we are in the world. We transcend that 
by gift, I would say, I don't think it's there's a 12-step program for it, but by gift, we have moments or a moment where we transcend our ego, where almost like an out-of-body experience on the level of the psyche, and we feel caught up in something. What are we caught up in? Union, oneness, communion. Um, in, a, in a Christian sense, we might call it the mind of Christ or Christ consciousness. You might refer to it as the non-dual or enlightenment. Some, somehow you feel connected or maybe absorbed into a whole that is greater than your everyday egoic persona. You transcend that. And the feeling is one of union, communion, and connection to a whole, as if you're one tiny thread in a web, the web of life itself, the web of the mind of God. And many of our great mystics and teachers, in their own unique way, describe what it's like to taste this. And probably why there are so many... Um, diverse ways of putting it is that whatever we mean by the self experiences this union very uniquely. So it comes to us in the way that it comes to us. But I would say as gift and as surprise, any kind of like, and I, I, I don't, I don't know how I would describe my own kind of spiritual experiences, but moments where I thought something of who I am is transcended, I'm connected to a larger whole, first of all, are few and far between, and it's very, very, very hard to talk about. It is. It's hard to describe. It's wordless. And that gives you at least a hint that you're dealing with something beyond the egoic persona who wants words to name things. It's like this. I know who I am because I believe this or these words or this ideology. Suddenly, none of that makes sense when you're caught up in a kind of union or communion with, um, with God or with spirit. And just as I'm thinking about it now, you probably know this, but the word spirit, both in Greek and in Hebrew, so I'm referring to the Bible now, is related to the word wind, which is a lovely way of saying whatever we mean by God's spirit is a bit like the wind. You can't tell where it comes from. You can't tell where it's going, but you, you can feel it. You can, get, you can be caught up in it. It can carry you places that you had no intention of going to in the first place. So that's a bit of spirit. The question is now, what's beneath that? So if the, if the spirit is about transcending the ego and connection with the larger whole, what about the descent? And now we're dealing with the language of the soul. The soul is about descending beneath the surface under the water, into the unconscious, beneath who we think we are, into the labyrinth of, our, um, of the unconscious and of the mysterious depths of our being. And the ego might say, don't go on the journey because you're going to lose a sense of who you are. 
people aren't going to respect you. You're going to be poor, you know, whatever. I don't know, whatever the, the ego might threaten. The ego doesn't want to be taken down like this, which is why it puts up a fight. And why so much of the language of soul descent is about death, dying, descending, being buried. Even the language of baptism, you know, down into the waters and up out into new life is about death, death and rising up into a new life. Well, the ego doesn't want to die. <laughs> Who we think we are in the world, we've invested a freaking lifetime in who we think we are in the world. And there's a lot riding on it. And that's why so many people who are massive failures or who think they were somebody, all of a sudden, when that rug gets pulled out, why do they more easily go on the, the descent to soul? It's because the ego got stripped by no choice of their own of its sense of purpose and identity, and they're ready for the descent. And... Um, in the ancient world, we'd be talking about the abyss, the underworld, Hades, um, that sort of thing. And it's scary, it's dark, it's dangerous. You're going to meet beasts and wolves and wild creatures, as well as discover guides that meet you in the forest that you barely recognize but you are attracted to their voice and you might begin to follow little golden threads or little breadcrumbs on the trail that take you to a house in the forest that has been there all along but um, you just had forgotten about and maybe the ego really didn't know anything about it and that's to go on the soul path another way of Putting it simply is, is um, discovering the uniqueness of who we are in our depths. And I'll get maybe a little clearer on uh, a definition in the next podcast, but who are we beneath the ego persona? So whereas spirit experiences, we tend to transcend the ego and be connected to a whole, soul experiences are much more about descending below who we think we are in the world and touching upon that tiny seed of our own unique individuality that only we can bring forth in the world. Like even if you think about the image of a tree, maybe the trunk and the branches are a bit like the egoic persona. It's who the tree is in the world and how others perceive that tree to be. Oh, we recognize that as a cottonwood, as a black walnut, as an oak, as a maple. And... It bears the scars of growing up. Maybe it's missing a limb here, and, and, and I have a black walnut tree in my yard that has a massive lightning strike, 40 feet long at least, and it's bearing this wound that who knows when it came, and yet it still lives. And trees can be healthy or unhealthy. This, this uh, in other words, the egoic persona can be healthy or unhealthy, and sometimes it needs a little help. It can be diseased. Um, and the tree itself, though, is reaching up towards something, and that's, um, that's the inclination, the inborn human inclination to reach up for divinity, God, spirit, or transcendence. That's to what the leaves are 
are um, touching upon, the leaves of the tree are touching upon God and commingling with the wind itself. And even as I'm thinking about this as, as a metaphor, I've never really thought about it this way before, but the leaves themselves go through cycles. Sometimes they're full of vibrant energy, which, mean, which might mean that there's lots of breathing in and out of the divine, and other seasons they've withered and fallen off, and it's just the empty branches that the wind is whistling past, and there's not much vitality or life. You might feel, where, what was that? Was, is there a God? What, is there transcend? So maybe the spiritual life is much more like the cycles of the leaves in a season. Which brings us to the root system in my little metaphor that I just thought of. The root system. The root system is the thing beneath the surface, the unconscious, and the taproot and all the little branches and veins that are reaching down to the depths of the existence of the tree. And we all would say, there would be no tree, there'd be no egoic persona, and there'd be no contact with God if that tree was not rooted deeply into the soil of the earth, if, if something was not beneath the surface that touched upon the essence and caused, in a sense, or supported the growth of the entire organism, of the entire tree itself. And... This is what I suppose all metaphors break down, but um, if you have a tree that's cut off from its root system, it cannot survive. And in a very simple sense, I think that's what so much um, of, the, of the work and the invitation for, for humanity is in the 21st century, tapping back into the roots of who we are. Um, Otherwise, you just have these disconnected and diseased egos walking around. Uh, how can they have contact with God? And certainly, they seem to have very little contact with the depths of soul, rooted in the earth itself. After all, everything we're talking about, soul, spirit, ego, all these uh, basically metaphors for trying to understand human existence, are nature are natural, are just as natural as a tree. We are just as much rooted in the earth itself as the tree that's in your backyard or that you parked underneath in the middle of, you know, Manhattan on a sidewalk. We might even say at this point that a healthy spirituality, and I don't mind that language, spirituality, involves... Uh, spirit, upper orientation, transcendence, a desire, a longing, and a deepening of that dimension of our human capacities, and descending into soul. Both are part of a healthy spiritual life. If you don't want a healthy spiritual life, fine. Continue on in your egoic persona, but be assured that you'll be ruled by the cravings of power, prestige, possessions. Be assured that the world will continue to be, be even more decimated, the natural world. Our relationships will continue to be more fragmented and isolating 
and there'll be more abuse, uh, more abuse of power, more dehumanizing of the opposite gender, and very little contact with depth, meaning, beauty, love. So, I mean, if those, if those are the, the choices, I'll go for the spiritual path, cultivating a spiritual path. So maybe an even simpler way of saying, saying it is that a healthy spirituality involves transcendence and incendence. I think it's Thomas Berry that came up with that term, or used that term at least, incendence. If, if um, spirit is like transcending the ego, incendence is like descending below the ego, and both are part of a healthy spirituality. Trying to walk closer to that unique essence at the very bottom of our being, hence soul, and also uh, opening oneself up to the mystery of who we think we are being transcended and being a being connected or unified with the great oneness of all things spirit path which probably leads me to a more important topic and that's how how i mean so what if we talk about and hover around definitions, but how does one cultivate a more healthy and whole spirituality, particularly in the soul path, which seems to be pretty neglected? There's a lot of kind of spirit talk about transcendence floating around out there and even in Christian circles, but in the spiritual but not religious circles and um, more and more people are 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 tasting a bit from the East and Eastern pathways of, of ascent and transcendence. So how, and, and I'm not here to give one an exhaustive list or something like that. And, and I won't even go into any detail, but I, I think it is important to mention a few things that seem to help along these lines. I love when Richard Rohr says we have to live into new ways of thinking. In other words, the invitation is, especially from the perspective of our, of our egoic patterns, that the invitation is to live differently. And the cycle and the monkey mind and the patterns have to be broken in some way. Some of that happens in just life sucking. Um, and some of it, I think we walk toward intentionally, say, I, I cannot live like this anymore. I have to find some some ways of uh, deepening my own uh, human experience. So the ones connected to spirit are, are becoming well-known. Things like meditation, meditation, contemplative prayer, taking 20 minutes and, and breathing uh, as a kind of exercise. It's sort of like training. If, it's, if your egoic persona can be transcended, well, once a day, you, you kind of take a break from that egoic monkey mind and can provide a little space between who you think you are and the something else. That's what things like meditation uh, dig around in. And, you know, I, I think it's worth saying um, that you can't cause this kind of union to happen. As James Finley likes to put it, you cannot make the moment of oceanic oneness happen but what you can do is offer a stance, 
of least resistance. He says something like that. Offer a stance of least resistance, which means things like prayer, meditation, or certain forms of prayer, contemplation, silence, become uh, a little bit of the of the stance we then offer to mystery that offers the least resistance. Hoping, of course, and longing because it's, it's part of our natural human inclination to long for union and communion with the divine, at least in my view. We, um, our ego um, doesn't take the lead. That's sort of that's my summary of a, prayer, of a prayer life. The ego doesn't take the lead. The other forms of incendence, soul path, sinking beneath who we think we are, are less known, but also no less ancient than prayer, meditation, contemplative, mystical practices. But they tend to um, disrupt in a similar way our egoic patterns, who we think we are. Things like extended exposure to the natural world. That's why I wanted to start with Jesus, 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. After all, um, like I said, the soul is nature. It's natural. And exposing ourselves to the natural world. And, um, and in that sense, something of nature itself mirrors back to us something of our own soul. But we can't hear that mirroring back, or we can't see that the, the mirror working if we're not out there in the wild world, which is where all of us uh, grew up. I mean, I mean, psychically, we evolved as natural creatures in the wild or wildish world. So when we expend time in extended nature, it's not for vacation. It's not to like, hey, I just, I'm a nature kind of guy and I just go out there and, and recharge. No, I think it can be, although that might be nice, it can be much deeper than that. Um, wandering in wild places, following your curiosity in wild places, fasting in wild places. I've done a bit of wilderness fasting where you aren't bringing anything from your tool bag with you. You're not praying in the ways that you've prayed. You're not even eating food in the way that you ordinarily would eat food to survive in the wilderness, but it's a total emptying so as to um, descend beneath who you think you are. And any kind of consciousness shifting um, activity, fasting can be one of them, but um, dream work, where you're beginning a dialogue with the unknown and the unconscious. Uh, DreamWorks has been around now as a really a, uh, um, a rich practice, contemporary practice for 100 years, but, uh, but of course it's as old as any human story. And if you're into the Bible, you know how many biblical stories involve dreams. So following that thread, because what happens when we dream is that the ego's not in charge. We might have a dream ego, an I that goes around doing this, that, and the other thing, but we, the ego, the waking self, is not in control of the dream. We don't decide what it is that we want to dream on. So that means we're entering into 
the labyrinth of what's beneath the surface where who we think we are in the world is not in the driver's seat and beginning to pay attention not only to the sort of the characters of the dream world which i think are just manifestations of who we are internally that may not necessarily correspond to the day world but um but particularly the feeling the feeling sense that we have in the dream the anxiety the fear the love the emotional content that's associated with these images and then beginning a conversation around these uh, the symbolic nature of what what the content of our dreams are after all the soul according to Jung is an image is something like an image might be a way of saying it and if that's true that means the language of the soul is imagery um, which is probably why on one level we don't even know why but we're drawn to the arts visual art music poetry dance even architecture with something in the soul wakes up as it begins a kind of living conversation with images because those images are symbolic they they mirror back to us something of who we are beneath the surface if you're drawn to a particular painting you hang out there for a while you let it work on you and when i say work on you i mean you let it work on who you think you are deepening what's been and what's beneath that and what's beneath that your your favorite um song or composition or poem you return to it again and again and again not because you're just trying to figure it out like how can you figure out the ninth symphony by beethoven there's nothing to figure out now you could i suppose pick it apart mathematically but what good what good would that do other than say well now i've picked it apart mathematically and i know how the scales work and i know um, so forth and so on i know what key it's in or i don't know um but the reason why we return to it is because it's it's like it's working on us and like something in us is waking up when we hear this um these collections of sounds being played in the way that they're played by the instruments in which they are being played so yeah this is so maybe maybe an exhaustive maybe this isn't the place for an, an exhaustive list but um returning to the natural world beginning a conversation with your unconscious through dream work or deep imagery work um paying attention to here's the difference between uh, deep imagery work um, where you pay pay attention to the images that come up and straight contemplation where you're letting go of images that come up both i think are important can be important so in practicing deep deep imagery work where you are you're allowing through the freedom of your imagination images to arise and then beginning to work with them and let them work on you what is this about where is this going we used to call that daydreaming we did all the time when we were a kid and 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 but we were sort of out of practice uh, and then beginning uh, a more soulful 
uh, conversation with, at least for me, it's been around poems, poetry, literature, art, um, wandering, the practice of wandering, following one's curiosity. These all begin ways of deepening uh, the soul conversation that wants to come alive. And it can help to, I mean, I, I have, I've, I'm into this sort of stuff, so uh, it can help to have some conversation partners, some guides along the way. Some of my guides have been books that I've read, but also myths. Myths contain almost everything we need to know about who we are on the deepest level, not because there's some trick to them, but because they wake up something that's already within us. Like the Jacob and Esau story, the wild man and the tamed man. Now those are male images, but let's take gender out of it. The wild one within, the person of the forest, the meat-eating hunter, and the tent-dwelling vegetarian whose mama's boy or mama's girl at home. These two aspects are the, our archetypal and our patterns that are within our own psyche, and they can get out of balance. I mean, that's, that was basically, by the way, Jung's approach to dream work, that something of the dream is trying to bring more wholeness. Something within our waking selves, our everyday egoic persona, is out of balance. And uh, every night when we go to bed, this is a, kind of the miracle of being a human being, something of our own psyches is trying to correct that path, trying to bring more wholeness, which is surprising because sometimes dreams feel like the opposite, like we're being attacked by something. But that very attack uh, is meant to, uh, in many cases, dismantle, deconstruct, kill off who we think we are in the world so that something new can be born. Some new seed can be planted in the depths of our being and grow against the future sky. That's the idea. So, wow, enough said for right now. Let's end with a poem, All the True Vows. This is a David White poem, All the True Vows. All the true vows are secret vows. The ones we speak out loud are the ones we break. All the true vows are secret vows. The ones we speak out loud are the ones we break. There is only one life you can call your own. This is soul talk, by the way. There is only one life you can call your own and a thousand others you can call by any name you want. Hold to the truth you make every day with your own body. Don't turn your face away. I think David White's giving a little hint here that the soul path is not some sort of disembodied, extra super spiritual self, um, but is actually something in the body. That the path back to our depths, to the one life that we can call our own, is in the body, in our full-bodied selves, in our emotions and sensations and imagination, our thinking selves. It's in there. And... Part of the, the growth, part of the path of invitation is to return again to the body. 
He goes on, Hold to your own truth. Hold to your own truth. That can sound kind of new agey, postmodern kind of, but let it, let that ring on the deeper level. Hold to your own truth at the center of the image you were born with. Hold to your own truth at the center of the image you were born with. There is tremendous faith in this line that whatever it is that you're seeking is already there. Whatever image of your true self that you're longing to date, to get to know, is already there. Those who do not understand their destiny, in other words, who, those who hang out only in their egoic personas most of the time, those who do not understand their destiny will never understand the friends they have made nor the work they have chosen, nor the one life that waits beyond all the others. By the lake in the wood, in the shadows, by the lake in the wood, so here we are in the natural world, by the lake in the wood, in the shadows, you can whisper that truth to the quiet reflection you see in the water. What truth? Well, the truth of the one life you can call your own, or the truth you make every day with your own body, or the truth at the center of the image you were born with, that truth. You can whisper it to the quiet reflection you see in the water. Whatever you hear from the water, remember. It wants you to carry the sound of its truth on your lips. And this is about as old of an idea as we can uh, get to know in terms of uh, the human condition, that the truth of your own life at the center of the image you were born with is to be planted out there in the wild world. You are to bring who you are forth in the world. Remember, in this place, no one can hear you. So this is not something you can put on a podcast. It shouldn't be put on a podcast. You cheapen it. Remember in this place no one can hear you, and out of the silence you can make a promise it will kill you to break. A different kind of promise. A promise it will kill you to break. That way you'll find out what is real and what is not. When you touch upon the image in the center of who you are, the kind of thing David White is talking about here, and you begin to bring that forth in the world, you find out what's real and what's not. And the promise is no longer to social conventions, your egoic persona, to other people and what they think of you, but your uh, commitment is, is, is to this inner image, to maintaining the connection of vitality to your true self. He goes on, I know what I'm saying, Time almost forsook me, and I looked again. In other words, he knows what it's like, as we all do, to go along the path of life and forget all about this 
truth at the center of the image we were born with. Seeing my reflection, I broke a promise and spoke for the first time after all these years in my own voice. So one metaphor I want to pick up on this next time. One metaphor for the soul is your one true voice. Seeing my reflection, I broke a promise and spoke for the first time after all these years in my own voice before it was too late to turn my face again. <laughs>